Hello and welcome to the National Leprechaun Museum's Talking Stories podcast. Your home for Irish folklore, mythology and all things storytelling. So hello and welcome to episode 74. I'm Nisha Odin, joined today by the wonderful, the magnificent, Poddy Holly. Hello, everyone. What a delight it is <laughs> to be here once again speaking with um, my favourite podcaster, I must say. Um, <laughs> you flatter me too much, Fordy. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Nisha. Uh, how are you today, Nisha? I'm absolutely fine, though, despite having no reason to be. It's very overcast outside. Yes, it's it's uh, raining cats and dogs. Yeah, and at the risk of revealing the inner workings of the museum, we're recording this in July. Yes. This is not appropriate weather for July. <laughs> no. I, I know we're used to it being in Ireland. I mean, being in Ireland raises you to be disappointed by the weather. Yeah. But it still doesn't hurt the sting. Yeah, I, th- I think Irish people should have been born with like built-in umbrella or flak jacket or something. But even just our dress sense, like, we know how to manage the temperature. We are experts at dressing in layers. We yes. do layers like nobody's business. Yeah. But waterproofing. Oh. Ah, go away out of that. Why would we need to be waterproof now? No, no, it's ridiculous. Be, it should be too good to own a raincoat. <laughs> sure, owning a raincoat, you're only getting notions. I was just going to say, it's going to be notions all over. <laughs> Raincoats, luxury. It's sinful not to let the rain wet you. Sure, if God didn't want you wet, he wouldn't have summoned the rain now, would he? There's, there's two inches of water out there, but sure, you can still wear your old plimsolls. <laughs> Your old vans. Why are vans so popular in Ireland? I don't know. I don't get it. Because, you know, there's no protection from the rain or the water or for your feet with the stones in the ground or anything. Uh, the only reason we don't all wear Wellington boots is because of the association. Oh, yes, yeah. We don't want to give away. Now, we know we're from the country and we're quite proud that we're from the country. <laughs> but we don't want to give away to strangers that we're no. from the country. God, no. no. What would no. they say about us? No, that would be too much like uh, singing your own praises. Yeah. <laughs> and we've already managed to spend a couple of minutes on the weather. It's yeah. going well. It's, for some reason, it is a topic held deeply in our hearts. Uh, yes, it is. But the weather suits it for today's particular story, doesn't it? It does indeed, because we're actually going to touch on a proper fairy tale today. And I know we tell a lot of stories about fairies, but this is the first time we're doing a proper literary fairy tale in a long time anyway. One of the most important uh, fairy tales in literature, uh, yep. it must be said. By one of the most important writers in literature, if yes. I do say so myself. Yeah. Oscar Fingal of Flaherty Wills Wide, 1854 to 1900. Which I just have to say is very considerate of him to just stop at 1900. Yes. It just makes it nice and easy for the biographers. It sure does. And, uh, you know, being from Westland Row, yeah. uh, you know, and going to college here in Dublin, he must have seen uh, a lot of the character in Dublin in the 19th century. That must have been... Uh, a very interesting time to be he here. He would have contributed so much of the character at that time. It was, oh, it's such an interesting time. Like when we were doing some of the research for this podcast, we actually found out that he, uh, one of his childhood sweethearts was stolen by Bram Stoker. Yeah. You don't really think about like Bram Stoker and Oscar Wilde being in the same place at the same time. But of course they were. And yeah. They knew each other. 
and of course the the mother Jane Wilde uh, oh. is, uh, is has many connections to some of the most important people in Ireland's uh, history because she is a famous nationalist and folklorist all of her life. Yeah, her her book, uh, Mystic Charms, Legends and Traditions of, the, of Ireland, it's a, I'm probably getting that utterly wrong, but it's an amazing little book. Uh, mm-hmm. It's got it's got all those lovely 19th century Gothic influences. And she's a wonderful writer. She's obviously reworking the material, but good God, does she rework it well. Yeah, definitely. And her husband, uh, Oscar's father, he was very interesting as well. Yes, William Wilde lived a, a, a wild life. If you'll, <laughs> I had to make that had pun. To, has had to, done. to. Had to make that pun. Famously um, uh, created quite a scandal in Dublin <laughs> in his youth. Uh, had to tour the Mediterranean as as, as someone's Batman. Um, uh, Batman. Sorry, I had to get that in. As the as a Batman is uh, someone's uh, servant. Uh, basically, think we won't. We think won't, Samwise Gamgee. Yeah, we we won't we we won't beat around the bush. Uh, William Wilde got a young woman up the duff, had to <laughs> run away from Ireland for a year and a half, and toured the Mediterranean as someone's yeah. servant to avoid uh, a scandal. As you do. Yeah. And speaking of scandal, didn't stop when he came back, though. Do you know the one about the eyes? No. Oh, it's no. my favourite. So he um, he eventually became a very famous uh, eye third and ear doctor. And he used to love experimenting. So uh, he got, uh, the story goes, because this is part of Dublin folklore, uh, that he got a patient to come in and he surgically removed the guy's eyes. Temporarily, he was going to put them back in, obviously. Oh but he took them out, put them down in a little saucer. And wouldn't you know it, he'd forgotten to keep the cat out. Oh. Cat came in, eyes are gone. Poor man, given probably an IOU. Or at least he was told it was an IOU. Oh, God. Now, that, that could just be an example of oh, good old folklore. But as I always yeah. say, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. No, no. And speaking of good stories, we've been beating around the bush for quite long enough, I do feel, because we are going to focus on one of Oscar's fairy tales. Unlike both his parents, he didn't really delve too much into the folkloric tradition in Ireland. He, wouldn't have, he would have been raised with a bit of the oral tradition, but that wasn't his thing. He wasn't a Yeats, he wasn't a Douglas Hyde, but he was an excellent... He just had this way with words. Definitely. And the, just the emotional pull of some of his stories, like the one we're going to do now. Or I say we, because we're going to let the lovely Brendan take us away with The Happy Prince. High above the city, on a tall column, stood the happy prince. He was gilded all over with thin leaves of fine gold. For eyes he had two bright sapphires, and a large red ruby glowed upon his sword hilt. He was famed throughout the world for his beauty. One night, a swallow flew over the city. His friends had gone to Egypt for the winter weeks before, but he stayed behind. But he was feeling it was now finally time to depart. He flew all day and all night, searching around the town. Then he saw the statue upon the column. Well put up there, he said. A golden bedroom for the evening. Fluttering down, he settled between the feet of the happy prince. He placed his head under his wing. His eyes, they flickered closed. 
and he was rudely interrupted by a large drop of water falling on his head. He let out a groan. Oh, this bloody country. Not a cloud in the sky, and yet it's raining. The climate here is dreadful. Another drop fell on his beak. What's the use of a statue if it can't keep the rain off? I'll look for a chimney, he grumbled, moving to fly away as a third drop fell. Muttering, he finally looked up and he saw... He saw the happy prince's face, beautiful in the moonlight, bright eyes wide and shining and full of tears, tears running down his golden cheeks, falling upon the swallow's wings. Who are you? asked the swallow. I'm the happy prince, replied the statue. Well, if you're so happy, why are you weeping then? You've drenched me. When I was alive, and had a human heart. I didn't even know what tears were. I lived in the great palace where sorrow never enters. All around me was beautiful. I never cared what laid beyond the walls of my gardens. But now that I'm dead, well, they set me here so high, and I can see all the ugliness and misery of my city, and even though my heart's made of lead, all I can do is weep. I see now, far away, in a little street there's a house, and there's a woman there. Her little boy has a fever. He's asking for oranges, but oh, she's nothing to give him but river water. Oh, swallow, swallow, little swallow, bring her the ruby from my sword hilt. But I'm waited for in Egypt, protested the swallow. But the happy prince looked so sad that the little swallow was sorry. Oh, it's very cold here, he said, but I suppose I'll stay for one night more. Thank you, Swallow. So the Swallow picked the great ruby from the prince's sword and flew into the town. At last he came to the poorhouse and he looked in. The boy was tossing feverishly. The mother had fallen asleep. He laid the ruby beside the woman's thimble. Flying back to the prince, he told him what he had done. And despite the freezing cold, his body felt warm from this good deed. The next night, he made his preparations again to fly to Egypt. But the prince called on him once more. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, he said. Oh, won't you stay one night longer? Far across the city I can see a young man. He's trying to finish his play, but he's too cold to write anymore. He doesn't have wood for his fire. The hunger's made him weak. Shall I take him another ruby? asked the swallow. Alas, I've no ruby now, said the prince. My eyes are all I have left. They're, they're made of rare sapphires. Pluck one out and take it to him. Dear prince, said the swallow, I can't do that. But the prince insisted, and the swallow plucked out his eye, and he flew to the playwright's room. He fluttered in through a hole in the roof and left it down on his desk. Now the next day, the swallow, he flew around the town excitedly. I'm going to Egypt, he said, and he fluttered up to see the prince. I'm coming to say goodbye. Oh, swallow, little swallow, won't you stay one night longer, said the prince. It's winter, answered the swallow. The chilly snow will be here soon. Oh, prince, I must leave you, but next spring I will bring you back two beautiful gemstones to replace the ones that you've given away. But swallow, in the square below, said the prince, there's a little match girl. She's let her matches fall in the gutter. They're all spoiled. Her father will beat her if she doesn't bring home some money. Pluck out my other eye. Give it to her. Her father won't beat her tonight. I can't pluck out your other eye. You'd be quite blind then, said the swallow. But the prince insisted. 
and so the swallow plucked out the prince's other eye. He darted down with it, slipping the jewel into the palm of the little girl's hand. When he flew back, he said to the prince, Now that you're blind, I can't in good conscience leave you. I'll stay with you for the rest of the winter. And the swallow, he insisted, despite the prince's protestations, and he slept at the prince's feet. All the next day he sat on the prince's shoulder, told him stories of everything he'd seen in strange lands. Oh dear little swallow, said the prince, you tell me of marvellous, mysterious things, but there's nothing more mysterious to me than how men and women continue to suffer. There's no mystery so great as misery. I don't advise any mortal. You must be my eyes. Fly over my city, little swallow. Tell me what you see. The swallow flew over the great city. He saw the rich making merry in their beautiful houses while the beggars were sitting at the gates. He saw the white faces of starving children in the dark lanes. He flew back and told the prince what he'd seen. I'm covered with gold, said the prince. Take it off, leaf by leaf, give it to the poor. Leaf after leaf of the fine gold the swallow picked off till the happy prince was dull and grey. He gave it to the poor. The children's faces, they grew bright and merry. They laughed and they played games in the street. But soon the snow came. And after the snow came the frost. And the poor little swallow, he grew colder and colder. But he wouldn't leave the prince. He kept himself warm by flapping his wings. But at last he knew he would die. He flew up to the prince's shoulder. Goodbye, dear prince, he murmured. Oh, I'm glad that you're going to Egypt at last, little swallow, said the prince. You've stayed far too long here. It's not to Egypt that I'm going, said the swallow. And he kissed the happy prince on the lips and fell down dead at his feet. At that moment, a curious crack sounded inside the statue as if something in it had broken. His leaden heart had snapped right in two. It certainly was a dreadfully hard winter. When the mayor and the councillors noticed the shabby state of the prince, they pulled the statue down. He wasn't beautiful anymore. They melted the statue in the furnace to make material for a new statue to be built. But strangely enough, the leaden heart of the prince wouldn't melt in the fire. Useless, it was thrown on the dust heap where the dead swallow also lay. And so both the happy prince and the swallow were gone from that city forever, faded into memory. But perhaps they've journeyed somewhere more incredible. Perhaps now, in death, the swallow sings in gardens as bright as the ones he sang in in Egypt. And perhaps, in some grand palace, the prince is happy once more. saddest endings in all of of fairy tales i think but still somehow uplifting yes it's that beautiful are. thing where you you are you're pretty much crying afterwards but you've got this warm fuzzy feeling in your heart it's catharsis in action 
Yes, and it's a beautiful uh, love song to the to the human spirit. I think that yeah. even if we were uh, a statue, even if our souls were became like a statue or inhabited a statue, we would uh, we would still do our our very best to care about our, our fellow uh, human beings. Yeah, and and even fellow swallows. Yeah. I really love the arc of the swallow in the story. Where, if we're perfectly honest, mm-hmm. he's a little bit of a jerk in the beginning. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Bit of a bit of a freaking. And there's something about there's something very Irish about it as well. To go, oh, all right, if you want me to, I'll do it. I will die like if I stay around. But sure, you know. Ah, you would. I wouldn't want to be upsetting you. I'll be. I'll just stay here. Don't mind me, sir. I'll yeah. just crawl up and die at your feet. Yeah, yeah. I, I, the the woman getting the ruby, um, mm. the ruby. Uh, Beautiful gem, of course. Stunning. Yeah. Waking up in the morning when you haven't been able to give your child fruit and they have, mm-hmm. they are very ill. Uh, waking up to find a ruby beside your bed. That uh, must be. I don't know. Is it ecstatic or would you be uh, frightened or? Well, you probably probably initial reaction would be, oh my god, a ruby. We're saved. Then where the hell did this ruby come from? Yes. Are they going to call the constables on me? Yeah. And then most likely, well, even if they don't call the constables, as you raised earlier, how are you going to get that ruby into money? Yeah, yeah. You have to find an appraiser. You have to find someone who will actually exchange it for cash. And by the end of it, you're probably going to owe more money. Yeah, yeah. And that is even if the if if the guys in the in the jewellery quarter even let you in the door. Of course. Yeah. Some Irish peasant coming I say Irish but there's no no indication it's actually set in Ireland some peasant comes up to your door clutching a ruby you're going to call the nearest law enforcement officer definitely <laughs> but that is the pedantry aside it is an absolutely beautiful story yeah. so finely crafted and you can like as much as I love that kind of rougher looser oral style and or the like medieval literature there's just something really finely crafted about Oscar's yes. work Yes, and it's got that. It's got that. It's got that rule of threes, you know, giving away and giving away yeah. and giving away, yeah. and then and um, our the swallow stays another day and another day and another day and then yeah. dies. Yeah, oh. yeah. It's 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 a, well, it's a classic for a reason, I suppose. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, gold and the statue. What do you think is uh, meant by the playwright in the middle? The playwright is hungry. Oh, that's definitely a reference to starving artists that Oscar would have known well. Yeah. I, don't, I myself can't resist making the odd joke about starving storytellers. <laughs> and, you know, being uh, someone studying classics. Yeah. Now, people tend to assume that uh, Wilde would have had a lot of money as a child. Hmm. But uh, just because his parents are part of the intellectual literati, li- yeah. literati doesn't mean that he's he's going to have a whole pile of money as a student. No, and that was pretty much the century of the, the rakes, the, the people who squandered their wealth or even their parents had squandered the wealth long ago. You have yeah. the name, you have the title, but you've not got a penny to spend. Yeah. Like, and he's attending uh, TCD. He's attending Trinity here in Dublin as literally. a... Uh, uh, on a scholarship yeah yeah did they did they still serve Oscar Wildcat in the path I don't know that you go to Trinity party I haven't been in the path now in years and I was going to say I don't think either of us would be caught dead drinking beer yeah (laughs) 
We need something a lot stronger. <laughs> a fi- or a fine Sauvignon Blanc called Oscar oh, Wilde. Maybe, maybe I'll be onto it. That would be lovely. <laughs> uh, but the f- I know that the Phil is still very uh, proud yeah. of um, uh, of Oscar's former membership, mm. uh, the Philosophical Society. And I know Trinity is very proud to own, I believe they own his fa- former home. They do. They do. Yeah. Uh, several former homes, because there's the one like, on the Western Row area. Yes. And there's the one in my hometown. Oh, there's a... Yeah. Literally 30 seconds walk from my house, which... Uh, revealing far too much. You didn't hear any of that, public. <laughs> but uh, there's a lovely bar in Bray. It's now called Café Vergiano. Ooh, but nice. it used to be The Strand for most of my childhood. And famously, it's one of Oscar Wilde's summer homes. Because uh, despite the fact that Bray is described as at best a kip, uh, back then <laughs> it was a kind of summer resort. You'd go there and yes. enjoy the sun, the surf, uh, yeah. these stones that when you squint really hard after yeah. a good few Oscar Wildcats, looks kind of like sand. The Irish Riviera. Yeah. <laughs> and they often do stuff to celebrate Oscar there. The Oscar Wilde Appreciation Society meets there annually. They've had readings from uh, Dorian Gray. And I think they've probably had the Happy Prince done because to be honest, I love Brendan's version, but I've heard that story so many times. So wow, right. yeah, yeah. Um, there used to be an event on in Bewley's Cafe in Dublin. Um, oh, nice. And I cannot remember his name. He is a very, very fine actor and I'm very embarrassed to forget it. But he used to work an awful lot with the Abbey and he was in a fantastic version of The Importance of Being Earnest. Wow. Where he nice. played, it was an all-male cast and oh, he played wow. Aunt Augusta. Oh, lovely. Oh, stunning. Lovely. But um, he, every year, would go to Bewley's and he would do The Happy Prince. Oh, and it's such yeah. it's just such but again I think it's the power of the story that like not like again Brendan told it perfectly and beautifully but it's just that story that if you tell it with any sort of competence you get that emotional reaction from it and of course when this was written the type of poverty that is described in the yeah. story was actually happening yeah it was all around you it's it's that Dickens thing again like they're not just drawing this out of their imagination they're talking about their actual societal issues and he yeah. wasn't quite trying to change society in the same way that mm. Dickens would be mm. but you can't ignore that and as an artist you have to be sensitive to the society yeah. around you but it also it's a, like saying that even a statue would be moved by the plight of these people yeah you know so how can you be so heartless in in government or how can the people that lead us be so heartless when even a statue would be moved by this and one thing i do appreciate is that went on that almost went unsaid but you could hear it louder than thunder yes and i think there's that subtlety that we don't get in as much of our writing anymore. <laughs> oh, no, no. over the head. I think the TikTok generation is a bit, and I would include myself in this broadly, would be a bit more about hitting you over the head with the morality yeah. of the tale. Yeah. <laughs> Not just going, oh, I'm just going to stand back. You take what you want from it. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. And the, the other thing about it is that, um, you know, statues to, to, to princes and statues to leaders mm. they're usually to very especially in that time they'd be to yeah. very warlike people yeah it was all about um, kind of birth of nationalism yeah. burgeoning a national identity and, and, and empire 
Yeah. And you get some, some weird stuff, like, say, um, the statue of Boudicca that Victoria erected. Oh, you've, you've got, yeah. you've got a woman famous, famous for fighting against an imperialistic conquering power, Rome. Yeah. And you're using her to endorse your imperialistic agenda. What's going on there, Vicky? Yeah. And the, the lead heart as well. Yeah. Lead is going to be important at that time because and people are talking about how... Is it killing us? Is it not? Yeah, yeah. and but but there's also that that alchemist connection. Oh yeah, the lead lead yeah. is the is the base metal, and a, yeah. a lead heart is at, is also a golden heart oh, in wow. a certain way. Right. Um, that I might be pulling that a little bit because I haven't read anything about that before. But I'm aware that like lead, if you if you see lead mentioned, it can often be a subtle reference to gold. Okay, right. And he definitely had some esoteric connections because yeah. he was a mason. Was yes, he? he was. Yeah, 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 yeah. He must have gotten to go into the lovely Mason Hall. Yeah. Oh yes, uh, they do a lovely tour in there. They do, and again, every culture night. Culture night really is the night to experience Oscar. I feel. Oh, that's true. Yeah, you can go to the place where you can. He lived. There's usually something on at the, excuse me, at the park in Marion Square. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's um, around his statue, which uh, statue. any any visitors to Dublin check out his statue. Uh, Which looks remarkably like you. <laughs> I often think, uh, as I pass it, that's very like Misha. <laughs> I would absolutely love to find out that there was some Oscar Wilde in me somewhere. Oh, you never know. You never know. Because uh, obviously, like Oscar, Oscar would be an Irish figure that has been very, that's always been very near and dear to my heart. Yeah. Um, like in in my younger days, when I would struggle with identifying with the the Irish identity because of like, like I'm, I'm not to complain about it at all because everyone's entitled to their own beliefs but I found the kind of entrenched Catholic identity in Ireland rather difficult because that's not the religion I was raised up right. and I found it very difficult to kind of identify with that self-suffering nationalistic kind of the patriotic figure of Ireland that Eamon de Valera would love us all to believe everyone in Ireland was I see his blood upon the rose yeah. Kind of yeah, yeah yeah and I just I couldn't reconcile that with what I felt was my identity and then you've got someone like Oscar who so much about him very much so appeals to me yeah. he's this literati he's literati he's an artist and yeah. he was a very good friend of Dorothy's and, and people <laughs> in America love him the, his tour of North America of course was uh, yeah. is very famous yeah because he went you know deep into the American South he went all over yeah. the American West and everything and they loved him yeah adore they him. absolutely loved him you'd think um uh, a uh, delightfully camp figure. Wonderfully. Yeah. Wonderfully. Was in a way that a Victorian gentleman only could be. Yeah. So good. Like it's like that that line when he's declared when he's going through customs. I don't I uh, remind oh. me. He's get, so he's heading through customs and the custom officer looks Oscar in the eye and goes, Anything to declare, sir? And Oscar looks at him and says, Only my genius. <laughs> <laughs> the genius we encounter more is the is is the mother yeah and uh, they were based out of Moitura house in county mayo in the yeah. summer which was it was an interesting detail if you're working here in the museum yeah because the battle of Moitura, uh the, both battles of Moitura, obviously very important um for in the mythology of ireland yeah and, and to think that in kong itself in Moitura house mm. 
that is where uh, the wild family summered. That is yeah. that is a nice little detail. It's a lovely little touch, and I think it kind of really encapsulates how Oscar might not have been. He was not an Irish folklorist. He didn't. He wasn't a Shanachie, but he. W- he was steeped in that oral tradition because of the research of his mother and father. And you can, as you mentioned before, you can see that in the use of threes. You can see that even if he's not doing traditional Irish folk tales, that folk tale, that folkloric quality is yeah. seeped through his fairy tale work. And only somebody who truly understood the way an oral tale works could have written a fairy tale that way. Wow. Um, Dorian Gray always, always appealed to me as well. I as, adore yeah. it adore it again one of the most quotable writers in existence the only thing I can I can resist everything except temptation yeah (laughs) well that was one of my little gripes though because speaking of Dorian Gray loads of the great great quotes from Dorian Gray are misattributed as things that Oscar said himself yes they give the the lines from his characters to him it's like no, Oscar was fully aware of the hypocrisy in some of these lines and the ridiculousness yes, of some of these yes, lines. Yes. They, they, they aren't revealing his nature, they're revealing the human nature, but uh, it's a debate. The, uh, but there was, there's something very Irish as well about the, you know, when the artist has the Bastet, is it Bastet yeah. is the cat goddess, yeah. in uh, their studio, and then there's something magical about the, the statue that creates the, the relationship with the, with the painting. Yeah. There's something very Irish about that, you know, about the, when you hear about stone idols and the mm. way that they also gave power in in yeah. in some of, in some of the ancient Irish worship practices. Yeah, and even just the very the very base thing, and I know it's common throughout Europe to an extent, but I think particularly here of this harking back to the old to the old pagan religion and the old pagan powers having some sort of mysterious magical effect. You don't talk about it too much, but you're aware that there's still power there. Yeah, it reminds me of St. Patrick breaking the statue of Cram Dove, you yeah, know, to, yeah. to, end the, to end the power of, of that cult. Um, Oscar uh, famously goes to jail for gross indecency yeah. in, in what must have been uh, the most inf- unfortunate time in his life. Yeah. Um, he, he took uh, the Marquis uh, to to court over criminal mm. libel yeah and the the marcus then of course un- uncovered um details about the relationship with the, the marcus's son uh, Al- alfred douglas yeah uh, so oscar after three trials was, was three yeah was uh spent time in jail and there wrote the wrote the beautiful day profundus yeah yeah. It's it's a bit, it's such a sad end for such a vibrant character, and you even get that impression like because I, I haven't delved too deeply into it, but I read a bit about the court cases, and you even get this impression that like they don't really want to be doing it. No, they don't they, even want to talk about. They don't. This no, stuff. They don't, and they were perfectly happy to do the old the old army. Don't ask, don't tell. Yeah. And yeah. if he'd just gone on being a bit of a dandy, they would have been absolutely fine. And yeah. like, I'm not, I'm not going to blame him for bringing the libel case. I'm not going to blame the victim, but it's just, it is just such a shame. Yeah. Such a shame that one of these, one of our great literary figures, just taken from the heights of it and absolutely thrown into the ditch. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a tragedy of of, of Greek proportions, really. A tragedy worthy of the happy prince. A tragedy worthy of the happy prince. And uh, on that, ladies and gentlemen... It's almost like we planned it. It's almost <laughs> like we planned it. <laughs> so, folks, I have been Nisha Odin. 
I've been Pawdy Holly. You have been absolutely lovely. We'll hopefully talk to you soon. Slong of Slong. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the National Leprechaun Museum's Talking Stories podcast. Remember, the best way to support us is by liking, subscribing, and sharing with a friend.